welcome. On behalf of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, I'm Patrick Ryan. I'm delighted to be uh, a partner with the American Council in Germany and Dr. Steve Sokol for what uh, has evolved as a series of uh, very important conversations uh, with Ambassador John Kornblum and today with uh, Dr. Leona Fix. Uh, we are uh, very excited to continue this series of uh, programs on this uh, important conversation uh, that needs to uh, continue uh, as long as the situation in Ukraine uh, continues at, uh, at the crisis uh, that it has become. Uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council uh, has partnered with the uh, ACG uh, a number of times, and uh, we are very pleased uh, again to be working with uh, Steve and, uh, and his uh, folks at the ACG. Uh, we look forward to an in-person event here in Nashville when Ambassador Kornblum returns to his uh, residence here. Uh, he's a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council Advisory Board and a part-time resident here in Nashville. So we're looking forward to him coming back and in mid-May, uh, we'll be putting on the calendar a, uh, an in-person event uh, with him here. Just a quick note, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is part of the World Affairs Councils of America Network. We're an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan educational association, uh, a unique uh, institution here in Nashville and in Tennessee. We promote uh, an understanding of uh, international events and uh, world affairs, and uh, we work with uh, high schools and uh, college students uh, to increase their understanding of important issues in the world. So we look forward to you visiting our website, TN wac.org to find out more about uh, our council, uh, perhaps become a member or to make a contribution to our efforts, and also to find the series of conversations uh, that we've had uh, since uh, January in cooperation with the American Council in Germany. Dr. Sokol, thank you for including us in the broadcast today, and we look forward to working more with you in the future. Thanks, Patrick. Patrick, the ACG is always happy to partner with the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and I think that this series of events has been just a great testimonial of how um, solid that partnership has been and, and how important the partnership has been. So a huge thanks to you and, and your colleagues at the Tennessee World Affairs Council for joining forces with us um, for this series of events, but also for other activities. Our pleasure. I'm also thanks. very happy. I'm also very happy to, to welcome our, our viewers in Europe and in the United States, and particularly those who are part of the World Affairs Council Network. I'm Steve Sokol, the president of the American Council on Germany, and I'm honored to lead today's discussion. I'm delighted to welcome back Ambassador John Kornblum and Dr. Liana Fix. Sessions with Ambassador Kornblum have become a regular feature for the ACG and the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and this is the second time that Liana Fix has joined us as well. Welcome to both of you, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. Before we get into um, the, the war in Ukraine, which I think we, we have to talk about, um, I, I really think we have to start by talking about what's going on in, in Germany right now. Dominating the headlines these days um, is the, the reaction to a proposed visit or planned visit by Frank Walter Steinmeier to Ukraine. Um, President Zelensky of Ukraine said that he did not want Steinmeier to visit because of his previous ties to Russia. Uh, that seems to have, have blown up um, in the press. But at the same time, the German coalition government um, and Germany as a, as a NATO member and as an EU member 
are is is really under um, growing pressure regarding two major issues. First, there's a massive debate in Germany about energy dependence on Russia and whether or not Germany should stop all energy imports from Russia. But second, measured against its size and economic power, Germany is doing less than other countries, including Great Britain, Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and even Lithuania to help Ukraine and to su supply it with military hardware so that it can defend itself. Germany appears in some ways to really be struggling to make good on its promise to deliver arms to Ukraine. And I guess one of the big questions I have is why is Germany so hesitant? Um, John, can, can we start with you and get your take on what I'm starting to call the German conundrum? You're, you're on mute. Sorry, John, you're on mute. Careful of that. Here we are. Um, there you go. Well, first, uh, thank you, everybody, for the invitation. And it's a great pleasure to be together with both you, Patrick, and Stephen. And uh, I uh, cherish my residence in Nashville very much. And so I'm looking forward to being there quite soon. Uh, as might have been expected, almost every issue, almost every crisis which takes place in Europe ends up revolving around Germany. That's because Germany is not only the largest, most productive and ultimately most powerful country in Europe, but it's also right at the center. It also has a history of involvement in many, many different kinds of uh, issues, uh, both positive and negative in Europe. And so when something's as dramatic as the Russian invasion of Ukraine comes, people look automatically to Europe and to Germany, I mean. And uh, this has been a quite a debate that has been going on in parallel. It hasn't been into the, in the press as much, in the, in the Western press as much as it might have been, but it is now uh, breaking out uh, very rapidly, probably mostly because of the quite aggressive attitude of the Ukrainian government itself. The Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin has spared no words in criticizing Germany for what he believes to be its lack of support. But yesterday, uh, the <clears throat> president of, Germany, of Ukraine dropped what one might call a bombshell when uh, he uh, re reacted to a proposal that President Steinmeier, Frank Walter Steinmeier, and the president of Poland make a joint visit to Kiev. And he said that a visit by Steinmeier was not desired. This has caused uh, major public explosions in Germany, major debate, some anger, but also some finger pointing. Why is this happening to us? And so uh, as we, many people argued a few weeks ago when the Russians started their, their aggressive tactics, uh, there's nothing which can be separated from anything else in Europe. It's a very uh, closely woven net of interests of peoples of history of friendships, of anger, and the Russian uh, effort, whatever it is, to restore the Tsarist empire, whatever uh, Putin's empire effort is, is, is turning out to be a major, major upheaval for all of Europe, economically, politically, culturally, and as we can see also in the internal politics of some of the major countries. 
Uh, we shouldn't forget that there is a presidential election going on in France right now, where President Macron, who by all normal measures of uh, analysis should be co quite comfortably ahead, is in fact not very comfortably ahead. He is probably, because of the French system, going to be reelected, but it's gonna be a pretty heavy and difficult task that he has to deal with the uh, right-wing parties who are showing themselves to have even more strength than they have in the past. And, and so how do you, I mean, let me just, just ask a, a quick follow-up. I mean, how do you explain um, the, the fact that Zelensky does not want Frank Walter Steinmeier to visit? Does it have to do with Steinmeier yeah. himself? And, and his sort of previous ties to, to Russia? Or does it have to do with, with kind of a, a general disappointment that both he and the Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin have been very outspoken about that um, there's a sense uh, in Ukraine that Germany just has not done enough to support the Ukrainians? Well, I think we should start from the point that Ukraine is really, really under pressure. Things have lightened up a bit. It looks like the Russians have pulled away from Kiev, which is a major victory for, for Ukraine as far as I'm concerned. But they seem to be doubling down on the Southeast of uh, Ukraine and the, and, the, and the Black Sea coast, which is extremely important for Ukraine for its exports, for example, including its very strategic food exports. And so I think part of it is, I won't use the word desperation, that may be too strong a word, but certainly a feeling that while Ukraine has been grateful for all of the support it's received, including from Germany, that it feels that it has to even get more now if it's gonna, if it's gonna survive this next phase. And however you wanna put it, as you also mentioned, Steve, Germany has been the weak link. It has had a strong internal debate the coalition is torn about it. The SPD itself is torn inside even more. There is still a strong peace faction throughout the country. There have, a, there have been some pro-Russian demonstrations, although not very many. And one can ask whether they were perhaps organized by the Russians themselves. But the, the fact is that the population has more or less carried the, uh, the support for Ukraine. But we're now reaching a very critical point where Germany's economic health and economic uh, uh, growth could be uh, affected by uh, refusal to import any more Russian oil, uh, by further closing off the Russian market, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is not showing up as being very popular in the polls. I've been reading polls this morning. Uh, anywhere between 60 and 80% of the people believe that, uh, that Germany should not have a oil boycott of Russia that Germany should continue economic relations with Russia. And so, and also the leaders of German industry are speaking out rather loudly about this subject. So I think if you go back to President Zelensky, I think he felt that it was, this is a, a point where he needed to dramatize. And he certainly succeeded by mm -hmm. in effect, disinviting Steinmeier. He really created a big controversy. It's on every paper this morning, every newscast, every discussion that's going on is more or less about is Steinmeier welcome in Ukraine or not. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. 
Liana, you've, you've been pretty outspoken about your views um, on an oil and gas embargo um, and also on the need for Germany to do more um, when it comes to, to supporting Ukraine. And so I'd, I'd like to sort of get your take on, on the same question of, of how do you sort of explain um, this, this dead end that Germany has gotten into? There was a great deal of um, almost euphoria at the end of February when um, Olaf Scholz announced um, a major policy pivot in foreign security policy, but also in energy policy. Um, there were some real hopes of fundamental change. Obviously, some of that change cannot happen overnight and takes time. Um, but I think many people certainly had a sense that Germany would really step up. And at the moment, it seems that in the two critical areas um, of, of energy and providing military support, um, Germany is, is not doing as much as many people had hoped. Yes, thank you. And um, let me try to put this a little bit sort of into context um, where this anger from the Ukrainian side comes from. And I would not, I would not frame it as aggressiveness. I would frame it as anger um, towards Germany's role that Germany has played for many years in Russia policy and Steinmeier's role in particular. This doesn't say, doesn't mean that the decision was wise by Zelensky to um, uh, disinvite Steinmeier, especially at such no, short notice. He was meant to come with the presidents of Poland and the Baltic states, and he was already in Warsaw. But it helps to explain a little bit why, to some extent, um, waking Germans up from their sort of um, position of, um, you know, moral righteousness to some extent um, is perhaps not not the worst idea. Um, at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the outbreak of the war, there was a perception um, which was put forward by some and supported by some German politicians that the war is some sort of catastrophe that is happening and that Putin has deceived German politicians. And there were quite some observers of Russia who argued, well, this was not the case. Putin deceived in 2014, but we could have known. Um, and there was a lot of intelligence coming from the United States, credible intelligence, that this war will break out. So this, um, this naivete, to some extent, before the outbreak of the war, um, has, has to some extent prevented a critical assessment of, of Germany's role and especially of Nord Stream 2. So the argument is that it's not enough just to say, well, now we cancel Nord Stream 2, but it's actually worth it to look back and to um, consider how was it at all possible that Nord Stream 2 could have remained on, could have remained on, the, on the table as an option for such a long time. Um, and Steinmeier, after having received some criticism from the Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin, he went on TV saying that not he himself personally, but that we in a very general way argued that, um, uh, that some of the policies were not, um, were not conducive <laughs> to and were not uh, intelligent policies against the backdrop of Russia's increasing aggressiveness. So it is certainly not um, a smart move by Zelensky and by Kiev, but it does trigger a debate in Germany, which is not unnecessary about Germany's role in the past. And it also helps a little bit 
to understand that this is not about um, Ukraine being grateful to us for our support. This is not altruism that Germany has to, towards Ukraine, but it is a duty for, for uh, Germany and it is also in Germany's own interest and its own security interest that Ukraine keeps fighting and um, does not lose this war. So I think as unfortunate as the whole episode is and as uh, positive as it will be viewed in Moscow, um, it is triggering a much needed debate in Germany about its past Russia policy. And Steinmeier obviously has, has been famous for the Steinmeier formula, um, which was perceived sort of uh, breaking down the Minsk agreements into detail, into a detailed process, which was seen very critically in Kiev. Um, and this obviously adds up to the other point that you, that you mentioned, the criticism towards um, Germany's reluctance to send heavier weapons, Germany's reluctance to get into an oil and gas embargo more faster than it has done so far. And sort of the pattern that we see there is the same pattern that we saw from the beginning of the war. So in January, there already was a big backlash on Germany's policies. Then there was two step, uh, Germany went two step ahead but then again, one step back without detailing how these policies will be followed up. So to some extent, the dilemmas and the problems that Germany is, um, where Germany is right now are self-created and the energy, energy dilemma is certainly self-created. Um, it is a tough decision to make for Europe to um, move quickly uh, out of Russian oil and gas. But at the moment, the impression in Berlin is that um, there's not enough done to think creatively about how we can speed up the process, but rather that there's a lot of resistance to the demands themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is something which, is, um, which, which doesn't create the impression that Germany is actually trying everything to help Ukraine and to move forward on these issues, but is rather blocking some, some of the necessary decisions. Mm -hmm. Liana, maybe a, a quick follow-up. Um, you know, since both you and and John Kornblum talked about about the Steinmeier visit, um, do you have any thoughts on on whether a visit by Chancellor Olaf Scholz would be received the same way by Zelensky, um, or any thoughts on on whether or not Scholz should go um, to Kiev? Um, I certainly saw um, on social media and a little bit in the German press that there was kind of a reaction when Boris Johnson was recently there and sort of a sense that Olaf Scholz should, should show support in the same way. Um, but I've heard nothing to indicate that, that Olaf Scholz is even thinking about a visit. I think that's, that, that is true. Um, and if we think from a position, what would be desirable, it would be desirable that every week a European leader and head of state or government travels to Kiev to show support and to just by their presence. Um, and uh, obviously this is only happening now, now that Kiev is not such a dangerous zone anymore, but it would be desirable to see this kind, this kind of travels. Um, but uh, so far, um, there are no plans made for Scholz. Also, there are no plans, as far as I know, made for Macron, um, which could indicate that Berlin and Paris see their position um, in sort of a continuous sort of mediation position or position that they held also during the Normandy format and the negotiations. Um, and that is obviously yeah, viewed critical from Ukraine's perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Um, certainly Scholz would uh, not be disinvited, but perhaps Kiev would have appreciated a visit by the chancellor who is actually some policy-making power more than a visit of, of um, a representative as Steinmeier, the highest representative of the state, obviously, um, but he has uh, no decision-making powers in bulletin. So I think mm -hmm. uh, at some point, Charles will certainly travel to Kiev, but it is not at the moment planned. So um, I'd, I'd like to maybe turn for, for both of you to how this is kind of playing out in, in German politics and in the coalition government. Um, on the periphery of the, the foreign ministers meeting in Luxembourg on Monday, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock called for more creative and pragmatic solutions in terms of, of trying to provide military equipment to Ukraine. Um, I've more recently seen reports that Michael Roth from the Social Democrats, who's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and also the designated FDP Secretary General, Bijan Deer Sarai, um, have supported the initiatives of the Green Foreign Minister Baerbock. Um, and yet, uh, Scholz has been hesitating, as we've been talking about. John, let's start with you. What can you tell us about the, the tensions that are sort of playing out within the governing coalition? Well, it is a complex coalition to begin with. Three parties who really don't have that much in common, but who have been able so far to harmonize pretty well. And even on the Ukraine issue have been relatively close together. Uh, the problem is that this is really a major eruption and a ma which is going to, needs to cause a major change in the way Germany sees itself in the world. Now, I was, I had the good fortune, you might call it that, although it was a long time ago, I would rather not have been so old a long time ago, but I was the person in the American embassy who was responsible for Ostpolitik in the years 1971, 72, 73, when Ostpolitik was springing on the world. And it was the same kind of atmosphere that we have now. It, at this time, it was a change between Germany's approach of never recognizing Russian occupation, as they would call it, of Eastern Europe. If you watch the evening TV news in 1972 and watch the weather report, you would have seen a map which included everything, including East Prussia and Silesia and Pomerania and everything which had been lost decades ago at Yalta. Uh, and so it was Germany not coming to terms with the end of the war. That's what Ostpolitik always was always about. Uh, for, for, through a number of skillful maneuvers, but also through major confrontation, uh, including a vote of no confidence in uh, April 1972, which, and I have to say this very bluntly in, in, at this point, Brandt won only because the East Germans bribed two CDU deputies to vote for him. Their names are well known, the amounts are well known. So it was even more of a, a clash that's going on right now. And I think the point here is that, and this is why I've been less uh, 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 positive about the so-called changes, the so-called Seitenwende that uh, Mr. Schultz started, because we're talking here about deep, deep-seated feelings, deep fears and deep hopes of the society 
And so it's going to take them a while to digest them. It's not going to happen overnight. And uh, that was the same thing. Ostpolitik now seems to be some kind of holy script, which was handed down. In fact, it was fought very bitterly through most of the 1970s until it finally became, uh, interestingly enough, under uh, Hamlet Cole, the real sort of foreign policy of the land. And uh, this is going to happen this time, too. It's not going to be easy. And that's why American leadership is so important. The reason that the uh, Normandy formula was so weak, and the reason, one of the reasons that uh, Mr. Steinmeier maybe entered into some formulations on Ukraine that he shouldn't have, is because the United States was absent. And the uh, Obama administration wanted to have nothing to do with Crimea or with the negotiations with the Russians or anything else. And the other lesson we have here is that in today's Europe, the United States can, can now as in the past, never be absent. Doesn't mean we have to be there with all guns ablazing. Doesn't mean that we have to have weapons being shot off, but we have to show some moderate, positive and competent leadership. And we weren't doing that. The first three administrations of this millennium have not shown any leadership in Europe. And so part of this, I don't want to overdo this because it's Putin's fault, not anybody else's. But part of this is in fact, the absence of the United States from the playing field for really the last 20 years. Thanks, thanks, John. Um, Liana, I, I think it was clear when um, this government formed that one of the big challenges for, for Olaf Scholz was going to be keeping this, as John described, complex coalition together, keeping the three parties aligned, um, but also making sure that there were not divisions within the parties, um, both particularly within his own Social Democratic Party, but also within the Green Party. Um, in both parties, there are different factions, sort of the Realos and the Fundis um, on, on each side. How do you see um, these tensions playing out within the, the governing coalition? Because we are hearing different voices from um, particularly the Greens and the Social Democrats, some who are more supportive of a more aggressive approach and others who are more reluctant. That's a very good point. And we see that the potential rifts that were there from the beginning of the coalition and that were already there in coalition agreement discussions now play out in real time and in real war time. So we, Alena Baerbock's statement has made very clear yesterday that the Greens are not entirely happy with the position of the Chancellery. Um, they want heavier weapons um, being sent to Ukraine and they don't want to risk the coalition or to create an impression of divides in Berlin. This would certainly not help anyone, no, not Kiev and, and most certainly will play into the hands of Moscow. But there are disagreements on how to how to proceed and whether the coalition is doing enough for Ukraine. And this is to some extent the first test for this coalition. It was clear from the beginning that energy and security policy will be the dividing lines. Some of the most difficult issues, it was actually Russia that was helpful putting those out of the way. So Nord Stream 2 was very quickly off the table. 
Um, then also the question of uh, say weapon deliveries is obviously one which is difficult for the Greens with their pacifist traditions. But the atrocities that we are seeing right now in Ukraine also lead to, to, to the Green bases um, uh, adopting a position um, that supports heavier weapon deliveries. So the dividing lines in the coalition were there from the beginning, and we now see for the first time that the Greens, um, both Habeck and Annalena Baerbock, try to put on pressure on the chancellery to move faster. Um, and uh, hopefully the outcome will not be a public, um, yeah, a public uh, disagreement within the coalition, because again, this would be not helpful, but it shows that the um, international perception that Annalena Baerbock hears from her partners and from Ukraine and what Robert Habeck receives as a feedback from his partners um, is not positive and leads them to put pressure on the coalition partners. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks very much. I, I'd like to fold in um, two, two viewer questions um, at this point. We have um, one question from Nashville. Uh, do you think that the current German government would accept a ceasefire agreement in Ukraine that ceded the entirety of the Donbass region as well as the southern coast to Russia? I don't know who wants to take yeah, it you first. You want to go first or I can? Yeah, I can, I can give it a quick take. Uh, I think the question is sort of, we should always sort of think about the question in terms of that whatever agreement is found in Ukraine, and I think it is important that we keep the options open and Zelensky does it for a negotiated outcome, it is a decision for Ukraine to accept. So the first, this is not an agreement that will be imposed on Ukraine by uh, Western powers. And at the same time, Western powers should also not push Ukraine towards accepting an agreement which is not in Ukraine's interest. So the question is rather, can Zelensky accept an agreement which sort of leaves the East to, um, to Russia? And the atrocities that we now have seen by the Russian side in Bucha and in other villages um, make this so much more complicated because obviously the question of territorial concessions of freezings um, of territory is almost impossible if the basic assumption has to be that war crimes could happen on these territories. And then again, Russian demands about Ukrainian demilitarization can lead to a renewed Russian attack within a short period of time. So at the moment, there's no agreement which seems acceptable to Kiev and would, which would sort of keep Ukraine alive and not only put it on a slow path towards um, a prolonged death. Um, and again, Germany and the West would have to accept what Ukraine finds acceptable. John, do you have anything to, to add to that? Well, I, I think uh, two short points. First, of course, Germany would not be in the position, as Liana said, of making a unilateral decision. There might have been might be some debate in Germany. But in the end, whatever happens as this crisis continues, it's not going to be any single country, including the United States, which defines what the directions or the endpoint are. It'll be first Ukraine, as Liana said. But secondly, it will be NATO and the European Union, the two who, in their each in their own special way, decide how to react to what is going on there. And so the, the big question which is coming up, I think, 
first, there's the question of the oil embargo right now. That's the biggest issue. And there's a lot of support, a lot of rejection of an idea of an oil embargo in Germany. But let's just say that there is some kind of moderation of the conflict. The big question, which is going to come up very fast, is the question of the sanctions. Is whether we keep the Russians under the most stringent sanctions that have ever been uh, applied, and that is the way to make sure that they re restore Ukraine to its uh, rightful uh, existence, or will there be people? And you already hear them, and this is where Germany is going to be one of the leaders, but also Italy, by the way. You hear people in Germany, the head of BASF, the head of BMW, people like that have come out already, saying that the sanctions are going to create a major recession in Germany, and. Uh, that we need to think very carefully what's going on. So as we said at the beginning, everything is connected to everything else here. And I think the, ma the major important, the most important thing for uh, listeners in the United States right now is to note that there isn't any picking this crisis apart and taking things which one thinks are easier or better. This is in fact now a major, major crisis of the global world order, if you want to call it that. And there is going to be no escaping from what's going on. Luckily, I think President Biden is following a very positive and very good track. But it's going to be very difficult for him, too, as the fall elections come, to make sure that he's keeping it as much in line with his own political interests as possible. And, and John, certainly the last time you and I spoke, which was about a month ago, um, you, you made that point as well um, about this really being a challenge for the, the global world order, not just the security order, but also the economic order. That's right. Uh, and there would, be, there would be lasting implications. Um, but what you just said also provides a, a really good segue to um, the, the second viewer question I wanted to fold in here, which comes from somebody in New York. And she writes, Apart from a ceasefire agreement, which both sides seem to be far from, what non-military measures by Europe, the United States, and other allies can really bring an end to this war? Would further sanctions on Russian energy and the resultant economic consequences for Russia be enough to make Putin reconsider an expensive continued Russian military campaign in Ukraine? Well, I'll take the first step at it. I think that the sanctions are, in fact, the most uh, workable tool that the, that the West, leave aside now Ukraine itself, that the West has in, in, in trying to suppress the Russian uh, attack. Military aid to Ukraine, of course, is the is the uh, essential element of keeping Ukraine alive and fighting. But if we're trying to look ahead to what a peace, so-called peace might look like, I think the sanctions will, re will remain the most important thing. And a oil boycott, a, a, a dropping of uh, use of Russian oil would be something which would hurt Russia quite badly as far as I understand it. And I think this is probably going to be the next issue which is coming up in the next two or three weeks because mm -hmm. <clears throat> there are many voices in Germany who are against it, in other parts of Europe too, by the way, but many other voices in Germany and in other parts of Europe which are for it. So there you have the making of a very controversial discussion. Perhaps yeah. just to add two more thoughts to that. Um, so if we look at this from 
sort of uh, where exactly does the money go? Um, the oil and gas payments, they are not sort of the uh, needed as um, financial means to finance the immediate war. So Russia can continue the war that is taking place right now with the means it has available right now. But if we look, so, so if we look in a longer term perspective, the Russian state budget consists to almost half of its state budget of revenues from oil, gas, and coal. So in the well, it does not directly finance the war right now and immediately. It does in the mid and long term provide the Russia with the financial means to keep the country running, to keep um, wages uh, being paid, um, social benefits being paid. So if we want to increase pressure on Russia to move towards a negotiated outcome, which um, is uh, not entirely um, not entirely against Ukraine's interest, then this move would be certainly important. And it would be even more important for Europeans themselves, because with the money that Russia now receives on oil and gas and coal revenues, Russia can obviously also fund in the future um, the, the, military, um, the military posture that it could use to threaten Europe. So both in our own security interest but also in the interest of Ukraine, which is our own security interest, um, putting pressure on Moscow um, to, uh, yeah, to reshuffle its state budget um, is certainly something which uh, is uh, and would, would be an effective means to not end the war immediately, but perhaps to shorten the war and to prevent that it continues for many years. Thank you. Um, Liana, a little earlier in our conversation, you, you mentioned um, the atrocities in, in Butcha, and um, I, I wanted to ask you both how the coverage of that and, and as the Russian military withdraws um, or pulls back, uh, we're hearing more and more reports about atrocities uh, in, in areas that the Russians had held. How is that influencing public opinion in Germany? Do you see reporting on um, these atrocities in places like Butcha? And is that having any impact on, on public sentiment? Yes, it has. I mean, there's widespread, there was widespread reporting on it. And to some extent, there's also um, an effort by the media, um, more or less successful, not to repeat the mistakes of MH17. So not to repeat Russian lies about those atrocities as just one side of the, as the other side of the story. So to say Ukrainians are saying Russia is responsible, Russia is saying Ukrainians is responsible, because there is a lot of evidence available which proves that Russia is responsible for that. So not catering into Russia's disinformation campaigns on Butcher is, is, is an important lesson to be drawn from, from MH17, from the downing of the Malaysian Air, airline in, in 2014. Um, and then also, um, it, obviously, the, it obviously creates um, moral outrage. But the problem is that, to some extent, the debate then involves into a juxtaposition of, well, there's our heart, but there's also our mind, which prevents us to take steps like an oil and gas embargo, even if sort of emotionally we would like to. And I think this is a framing which is difficult because 
those um, potential war crimes are not only about um, emotions. Um, they affect knowing that an actor is willing to conduct war in such a way as our interests, our hard, very hard interests. So again, this is not only a question of moral or of emotions, but this is a question of, of defense um, and of understanding the Russian calculus um, and also to some extent accepting that what Russia has done in Syria might uh, in Ukraine be even worse because they have um, troops on the ground, which they didn't have to such a large extent in Ukraine and also accepting that Russia is willing to use any methods to conduct this war and there's no um, yeah, no limitations uh, because Ukraine is uh, a neighboring country and has been a brotherly country to, to Russia. And this tells us a lot about the nature of the Russian regime. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd like to, to turn to the, the conflict itself. Um, in recent days, uh, satellite images appear to show Russian troops massing for a new offensive and there have been mounting concerns about a, a major offensive um, in the East. At the same time, Ukrainian officials said earlier this week that they had thwarted a Russian cyber attack on Ukraine's power grid uh, that could have knocked out power to over 2 million people. And more recently, I guess it was yesterday, the US government um, said it remains concerned about Russia's possible use of chemical weapons Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the US has, quote, credible information, end quote, that Russia may use chemical agents in Mariupol. John, let's, let's start with you. How do you think the war um, will unfold in the coming days and weeks? And what's the likelihood that we'll see more cyber attacks and possibly even the use of chemical weapons like we saw in Syria? Well, I would... I'd like to start with one point, which Liana sort of touched upon, but I'd like to make it even more strongly. That is that since 2014, with the occupation and the, of, of Crimea, et cetera, uh, the Russians have been very much on the offensive in the public messaging of the narrative of this crisis, of the existence of Ukraine, of the reason that Russia is doing things. And my own view, one can debate, but my own view is that they, up until recently, were in fact dominating the message that the West was catching up and Ukraine itself was catching up. Uh, they, the Russians threw out these various narratives. The first, it was NATO's fault. Secondly, it was uh, the fault of uh, Western in, uh, industry. And, and thirdly, it was the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Notice that none of these uh, ideas have actually flown very far. But the Russians are, are masters at doing this, and we are behind still to this day. And that's why I believe that it's very important. The questions, the kinds of questions you've asked, Steve, are really in many ways part, almost one of the key elements of the future. We have to define this not as a, a part of former part of Russia, Ukraine, trying to uh, maintain its independence or its sovereignty. <clears throat> Rather, we have to say that this is a Russian attack on the entire world order as it was negotiated. I was one of the negotiators as it was negotiated in the late 1990s. And that Russia is in fact exploding the entire structure, not just of military cooperation, but also of globalization, of 
global supply chains, all these new things that we're learning how to understand. And that Russia really is, uh, is uh, disrupting the positive in the development of the world at a time when we have two pandemics, if you wish to call it that, first COVID, of course, but secondly, climate, which are in many, in most ways, many times more important to the future of the world than whether Russia feels happy in its historical framework or not. And so we're facing here, in other words, one of these multi-leveled issues, multi-leveled crises. It's a crisis first, if you're a Ukrainian, it's a crisis on the ground. Your country is being attacked and partially destroyed. If you're a European, the whole sense of a of stability and of peace in Europe is being affected. But if you're a human being, Russia is in fact destroying and, and attacking many of the uh, goals, many of the methods that were necessary to make sure that human life continues to prosper on this planet. It's that dramatic. And so what is this war going to be about and when is it going to end? That's your question. It's going to probably wind down in some place. And when it starts winding down, it will be the very biggest challenge to the West, not to allow it to wind down into a lowering of hostilities or in fact an end of hostilities and let Russia maintain whatever gains it's had and saying this was legitimate, but rather we have to define it in a way which makes clear that Russia is disrupting all of us and disrupting our world. And this is very important for Americans because we are the ones who in fact define this world. You can see it again, how the United States has to be the center of this dealing with this crisis. And so it's important that we define this crisis as being much broader than the future of Ukraine, however important that is. It is we're really talking about, I'm not overdoing this, the humidity, the, the future of humanity. And that's going to be a very difficult issue. And that's why I that's why I welcome such discussions as we're having today. But I think also that it's we're we're still behind in 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 messaging, that's a good modern word, and messaging what this is really all about. Yeah, I mean, John, I, th I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, obviously, there's a lot at stake for Ukraine, um, but there's more at stake than just Ukraine. Um, that's right. And that's something that we're, that we're seeing, you know, playing out. And it's important both to look at what's happening sort of on the ground in Ukraine, but also the broader, the broader context. Um, Liana, you know, John was just talking about the fact that at some point, who knows, who knows when, um, this, this war will, will wind down, um, but it might not be over. Um, relatively recently, Vladimir Putin announced that the war would be over on May 9th. And I'm curious to hear from you um, what that tells us, if you have any, any thoughts or insights. Yes, I mean, this is the point with autocratic leaders that they want um, reality to behave in the way which fits into their um, timeline and in their representation of themselves. Um, so the idea obviously is um, to use May 9 as a huge propaganda event. Um, and ideally the Russian president has some successes to present. Um, so ideally um, he would have um, uh, made progress in the East and in the South. Um, Mariupol would be under Russian control so that he could advance a propagandistic argument about um, the Donbass being liberated in the administrative borders of the Donbass, which 
would mean a huge advance and a huge battle, which would be very different from the battle that Ukraine has faced so far. It would be a major open um, battle on the ground rather than those small units um, moving towards cities and villages that we've seen so far. Um, so there is concern that until May 9, we will see a major offensive by Russian troops and um, also an attempt to encircle the Ukrainian army in the east and in the south. And that's obviously something where the West needs to step in to, to prevent that. Um, if Russia gets a foothold in the east and in the south, this will be the opportunity for Russia to further um, try and advance on Kiev. Um, we should not uh, hope that Russia's aims for this war have changed. The aim remains to bring Ukraine under Russian control. And the Russian president has said this himself very clearly. Um, just because the tactics are changing and Russia is now focusing on the east and on the south, um, this will not mean a, a change of Russia's overall aim. So uh, I'm going to try to pull a couple of, of threads our, of our conversation together. But you, you know, there, we've talked a lot about the, the calls from Ukraine um, for help in defending itself. Um, but it seems to me that there, there's another issue at play here, which is not just providing Ukraine with the material it needs um, for defensive purposes, but also supplying the right equipment um, so that Ukraine can actually go on the offensive and try to take back portions of the country that have been taken by Russia. And, and so I think we're, we're seeing something play out here where um, Ukraine, the Ukrainian military is trying to, to anticipate a Russian onslaught and anticipate some of the, the challenges that you just described, Liana. Um, but what can be done to actually help Ukraine go on the offensive um, and, 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 and perhaps even emerge uh, victoriously? I'm curious whether either of you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I can. I would say the, that we've reached now a very interesting, or maybe almost unique point, at least unique in the last uh, 75 or 80 years since World War II. That is where uh, one country, Russia, has attacked another country, Ukraine. The Ukrainian military is stronger than everyone thought it would be, and it's doing a good job generally. But it needs massive inputs of weapons, of, of uh, support material, of, of and and of also of, of, of training and, and know-how. And that NATO is moving more and more rapidly into providing this. You can debate well, what each individual country is doing, but it's really starting to become quite important. And the amount of training which goes on outside of Ukraine, some of it in the United States, by the way, is, is quite important. So the real question that you're sort of answering, asking, Steve, is when when is a war not a war, or when does a not a war become a war? Uh, so far, every NATO leader has said, we will not send troops into Ukraine. We will not fight in Ukraine. But the border between essentially quartermastering the entire Ukrainian army and uh, and not being part of the conflict is going to be a very thin one. And this is, again, goes back to the whole question of how one could bring all of this to an end. Because we, we haven't 
talked about the uh, big elephant in the room yet, that's Russian nuclear weapons. Uh, Putin tried at the beginning to uh, sort of uh, suggest that he might be thinking of them, and that got, I think, caused such a negative reaction that he pulled back a bit. But those weapons are still there, and they are still, the, in the end, the thing which makes Russia a big power. That obviously, they're, they're, in fact, their army has shown that it's not quite the power that we thought it would be. But the weapons are there, and they are functioning, and they are killing, and they could end the world as we know it. Let's put it very bluntly. So uh, the, the diplomacy of this is going to be very, very difficult. I have no uh, smart ideas about how that could be pursued because it's too early to do that. But at some point, people are going to have to start talking very seriously with each other about bringing this to somewhere to at least a stability so that it doesn't expand into something even more dramatic. And in this case, I would just throw this in as something everybody should watch the, the role and reaction of China. China has been slowly but clearly pulling back from Russia. And, uh, it, and it, I think we don't need to go into all the details, but it is doing that. And I think that China must be getting very, very uncomfortable about Putin's behavior at this moment. Liana, do you have, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think the last point um, uh, that John raised is actually something where we should be very clear on the role of China in this context. And um, I think it was even Medeiros who put it very nicely into the terms of pro-Russian neutrality that we see from the Chinese side with a focus on pro-Russian rather than on neutrality. So with the idea to put out an outer face of neutrality to prevent the China has um, costs due to Russia's actions in Eastern Ukraine, um, but at the same time, very clearly standing with Russia in opposing Western hegemony. I mean, the sort of ideological foundation there is very similar. Um, and therefore, the, um, the, uh, we might see sort of overt Chinese not voting um, in favor of Russia at the UN Security Council. China will certainly not openly circumvent um, sanctions towards Russia, but they will find ways to support Russia if necessary. Um, and this uh, is something, and especially from a German context, this is something which should give us should give us a pause because the way how Russia is now cut out of the global economy, finance, um, uh, targeted with sanctions, this is not something that could be done with China in case China develops into a similar direction. And the crucial question also for Germany will be whether what kind of lesson should be drawn from the war in Ukraine for relations with Russia, because it was actually the whole concept of change through trade um, once mm -hmm. it didn't work anymore for Russia, which was then applied to China. Um, and it might be the case that change through trade um, has not worked with Russia in the last decades, but might also not work with China. Liana, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of my fundamental questions in, in recent weeks has been, um, as Germany rethinks its Ostpolitik and its policy of Wandel durch Handel vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia, is this sort of leading to a new debate in Germany about ties between Germany and China as well? 
um, and the the interdependence there. So I think that you've you've sort of struck a, a very important topic or theme. Um, related to China, though, one of our, our viewers um, just submitted the following question um, with regard to this no notion of a, a new world order and, and how it might fall into place. When do you think that China will step in? Will they wait until the end of the war, or do you think that they'll become involved earlier? Wait, well, just to... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead again. Yeah, just to just to add on what I've said, I think they will not sort of they've done this joint declaration with Russia before the outbreak of the war, where China for the first time signed up to Russia's narrative of NATO being a threat. But they will certainly not um, sort of they will covertly support Russia, but they will certainly not risk um, um, that their economy or their sort of political goals are infringed by the war. And we've seen this also, the Chinese companies have announced they will not operate anymore on the Russian market, Chinese telecommunication companies. So we do see that Russia, the China tries to cut its losses, but at the same time standing politically very close to Russia. So as, as we come to a close here, I'd like to, to maybe um, bring, bring the conversation back to Germany again with a question that one of our viewers has, has posed. Um, our viewer writes that, you know, given everything that we've talked about in terms of the reluctance by the governing coalition, um, internal divisions in the German government, uh, she would be interested in hearing more about what kinds of tangible steps each of you think Germany must take in the coming weeks and months um, to address the challenges that it faces. These can be steps um, that Germany might take unilaterally, um, both in the economic arena, in the energy arena, but also in the security arena. But it might also be measures that Germany takes um, in a multilateral context of the European Union or of NATO. And so I guess, you know, to, to sum it up, the question is, what would each of your recommendations be for the government um, in terms of tangible steps that the country should take? Well, I will start perhaps. Um, first, the most important thing will be how Germany appears to itself, but to Europe and to the world, and especially to the Russians, as a supporter of the continued independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. There's no doubt in my mind that Putin thought that he would be able to keep the Europeans divided and um, not very, uh, uh, not reacting very strongly, and that the key to the whole thing was Germany. Uh, it, it seems to me that he much uh, overestimated or, or um, under, didn't understand the kinds of pressures that would uh, be on Germany. And he had been listening too much to certain people who tell him what's going on in Germany and, and, and that not have been correct. That's, I think, point one. Where is Germany going to stand in the Western community of nations? This is not a single act that it needs to take or, or whether it sends this, these weapons or that weapons. This is a sense of being fully enthusiastically and wholeheartedly uh, on the side of Western democracy and especially supporting the interests 
not just of Ukraine, but also of the Baltic states of Poland, and also other countries who have already chosen to want to be part of the West. That includes Georgia, that includes uh, Moldova, it includes mostly to Armenia, although it has a complex relationship. And it's also starting to include some of the so-called stand countries in Central Europe, Central Asia. And so the, the longer term issue here is gonna be the, the fact that not only cannot, Russia cannot control Ukraine, but it can't control its bordering lands at all. They, they wanna be part of our world and not part of its world. And Germany is gonna be a key to this. I've argued this for years, that Germany is gonna be probably the most important country after the United States and China in the development of the new digital world. And I continue to believe that, not because Germany is very far ahead on digital technology, but because it's the switching point across the Atlantic and, and, and on to China, and it's going to be very, very important. So I would limit it almost to that. Sure, they should send more weapons. Sure, they should be more enthusiastic. But the real question is, will they step up and be one of the leading voices for the Western way of life in, and, and, and trying to push the Russians back into a acceptable behavior. Thank you, John. To, the, the last word goes to, goes to you, Liana. Thank you. Just everything that John said, I can absolutely subscribe to, but just to add two or three sort of concrete steps. The first one, um, sending troops to Eastern European member, NATO member states, um, rebuilding some of the trust that Germany has lost there. Um, the second step, um, heavy weapons to Ukraine. Those tanks, Russian uh, German tanks that are not being used would be very useful for Ukraine um, in, the, in the course of the war and throughout the next months. And then the third step, trying to do everything to um, move forward the timeline on uh, Germany's exit from Russian oil and gas. Those are my three points. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Liana Fix, John Kornblum, on behalf of uh, both Patrick Ryan and the Tennessee World Affairs Council and the American Council on Germany, I want to thank both of you for, for joining us once again today. Um, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. Um, obviously not an, an uplifting um, or, or sort of um, positive, a discussion with a positive outlook. Um, I think the challenges are too great, uh, but I really appreciate your nuanced insights uh, about what's going on in Ukraine and the broader uh, implications of what's going on in Ukraine and particularly what that means for, for Germany right now. So a, a huge word of, word of thanks to, to both of you for taking the time to speak with members of the ACG and the Tennessee World Affairs Council and our, our friends. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for the discussion. And of course, thanks also to our viewers. Um, thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, it's always great to have active uh, viewer participation, and I really uh, appreciate so many of the questions that we got. For now, let me wish you all well, um, stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you soon, I hope. Mm -hmm.